0: that it is almost impossible uh, to render it in English in a satisfactory and comprehensive uh, way other than just by talking about it. One can't do it just by translating it into a a word or even a number of words. And uh, most of you who have been in contact with Buddhism uh, will I've heard this word Dhamma in Pali or Dharma in uh, Sanskrit. Maybe you're more familiar with it in the Sanskrit form, Dharma. And it is very important. It can mean many things depending on how it's used in the context. But uh, the most important meaning of it is the truth, the truth. And that is a very important statement, the truth. The means that there is only one, there is only one reality. There are many delusions, many, many delusions, but only one true reality. And that Reality we call the truth. We can say it in different ways. We can say the truth of the way things are, the true nature of the way things are, or the true nature of things. And sometimes we develop some strange ideas about the truth. You know, we either think that it's a... you know, something like an I, I, a belief or that we can uh, label the truth with some words and therefore have it in the palm of our hands. Once we can label something, we, we think we've got it. Once we can uh, call it something, then we think we understand it. Once we can uh, conceive a label, we think that we're holding that reality in our mind. But the truth, by its very definition, in that it is only one and that it is singular in the sense that there is only one truth that is real, must mean that it cannot be held in concept, in thought, in ideation, because all of that is dualistic, it is variable multiple, of great many different varieties. So you can never think the truth. That's very interesting, isn't it? You can never think the truth. In other words, you cannot arrive at truth just by thinking. Very humbling experience for most of us who are very addicted and fascinated by thought, the power of thought. And thought is very powerful, there's no doubt about it. And thought is very useful, there's no doubt about that either. And thought is very necessary in order for us to live. But thought can never reach truth. Thought is always limited. Thought is only a very shallow aspect of experience. Thought is a gift a wonderful ability, but it has that limitation. It cannot reach truth. Then of course we may start to think of truth as, actually, alright, so I can't label it, but it's something, hmm. something, and it's usually something far away, something special, it's so special it must be somewhere else, somewhere far away outside of me, beyond me. The truth. Like we start talking about the truth in terms of an abstract, uh, remote object that is so far, so special that we can't possibly come to it. But from the Buddhist perspective, this is wrong view. Because Dhamma, in the sense of truth, the truth, is the essential nature of everything. Everything manifests this essential nature. My teacher used to say that there is no place, there is no place at all, which is void of Dhamma, where there is no Dhamma. You cannot find such a place. You cannot go to such a place where there is no Dhamma. There is no thing which is separate from Dhamma. What that means is that the truth is always manifest in everything, everywhere. The Truth is the underlying nature, the underlying nature of everything, every aspect, everywhere. For one who has the penetrating eye of insight, the inner eye, the vision, the vision, the knowledge and vision of truth, in other words, is able to see truth, it is manifest in everything, everywhere. Now this may seem still rather abstract, what does it mean? The little flower on the altar, even one petal of any of those flowers is manifesting truth. It teaches truth. Dhamma is dhamma is an expression of <coughs> truth. The cat that's in the room is expression of dhamma. It is manifesting, uh, explaining truth or manifesting truth. The feelings in your knees, expressing truth, the truth. A noise in the room that. Is Manifesting the truth. The thoughts in your mind still manifesting the basic nature called the truth. The feelings that you are having, yes, emotions or states of mind, pleasant or unpleasant, all manifest the truth. All proclaim the truth loud and clear. The truth means the nature underlying everything. The basic essential nature underlying everything. Whether it's a material or physical, external, internal, subjective, objective, it all manifests the same basic fundamental nature. So it is in the hope or in the quest for the realization of this truth that we Mm. choose various mm, paths because the realization of this truth is not just an academic um, philosophical interest It is equated with enlightenment. It is enlightenment. That is what it is, to be enlightened, to realize the truth. Not to think about it. Not to imagine it. Not to speculate about it. Not to believe in it. Not to worship it. Not to sing about it. But to realize the truth through direct experience direct one can say knowledge and vision that is what spiritual life uh, is all about that is what a spiritual life and spiritual practice is concerned with really as a fundamental purpose it is for the realization of enlightenment or realizing the truth coming to the essence, as it were as a direct experience and it is a basic, I think, fundamental, intuitive Aspiration of every human being, certainly. It may be only a a, sort of just a little bit of a sort of wish or aspiration in a mild form. I wonder, I wonder what it's about. I wonder why I'm here. I wonder what all of this is for. Or it may develop into a very deep commitment. A deep aspiration are really wanting to discover to realize a fundamental truth beyond all that is conceptual beyond that all that is variable beyond that which is always changing always relative always maybe maybe from this angle maybe from that angle which is the the nature of all experience, isn't it? Normal experience. It's always relative. You know, what I believe. Somebody else comes around and says, I don't believe that. I believe something else. Oh, dear me. What I like. Somebody else, I don't like that. I like this. What I think. I don't think that. I think it's this way. Everything in that we experience is so relative, so changing. And there is that funda- that aspiration to reach something beyond this. Beyond to come to a truth, a reality, an essential nature that is no longer relative, maybe. A fundamental truth that is unshakable. That is not dependent on anybody's belief. That is not dependent on how you think or not think about it. That is not dependent on any cultural conditioning. It is not dependent on just some uh, philosophy or some ism. Mm -hmm. But a truth that is just the essence which through the realization of brings complete fulfillment beyond doubt Now that is I think an intuitive kind of aspiration of most of us but for some it's strong, for some it's weak ultimately it becomes strong and stronger I think through the process of just um, life living. But this truth you must not see as uh, something apart, something somewhere else. Hmm? Try to think of it in this way. The truth is the underlying essential nature of everything. Hmm? So that the flower, yes, its essential nature is the truth if we can only see the essential nature. This body that we have here, its essential nature is the truth. If only we could see that essential nature. The feelings that we have, even anger, yes, its essential nature is the truth, if only we could see that essential nature. Even suffering, its essential nature is the truth. If only we could see that essential nature. All of these things, all of these things manifest, proclaim or teach or declare truth to those who have the vision. what this vision means is the mind that is fit to see. The mind that is fit to penetrate the veil, that's all it is, the veil of ignorance, delusion. Ignorance is simply the All the assumptions, all the beliefs, all the perceptions through which we uh, see things. So when we see the flower, we don't see the true nature of the flower, we see something quite other. We see something we like, we see something we want. We see something we don't like, we see something we don't want, or we just see some ah oh, just something. <laughs> but we don't see the true nature. When we see a body, ah, oh, we see something we like, or we see something we don't like, or we just see something we ignore, we can't be bothered with. But we don't see true nature. In other words, the mind is not penetrating. Isn't able to penetrate to this true nature, and it sees through the veil. In other words, through the perceptions, through the beliefs, through the uh, preferences and biases, through the labels, through the naming, and uh, various mental proliferation. That's how we see. The Dhamma is always there. It's not that it's not there. The truth is there. It's not as if it's missing anywhere. It's just the mind isn't open to it or is not able to penetrate to it. And this is why the Buddha said that the Dhamma, or the truth, is. Regardless of whether a Buddha arises in the world or does not arise in the world, the Dhamma is. Regardless of whether anyone realizes it or doesn't realize it, the Dhamma is. Regardless of the evolution of the world systems or the dissolution of the world systems the dhamma is What is this dhamma? The dhamma is the true nature of that of whatever wherever whenever everything manifests that true nature the evolution of the world systems, yes, manifesting Dhamma. The destruction of the world systems, yes, that manifests Dhamma too. Birth, yes, that teaches Dhamma. Death, yes, Dhamma there, not a Dhamma. Praise, yes, Dhamma. Blame, Dhamma. Pain, Dhamma. Pleasure, Dhamma. beauty, manifests Dhamma. Ugliness manifests Dhamma. Health, sickness, they all manifest Dhamma. But we don't see it. That's not what we see, of course. It's not what we experience. What we experience is desire for the pleasant, aversion for the unpleasant, and just uh, disinterest for the neutral couldn't be bothered, can't be bothered, until we don't see any Dhamma. And because we don't see this Dhamma, we're unenlightened. And because we are unenlightened, we suffer. But that suffering is also Dhamma. (laughs) It also teaches Dhamma, even the suffering, don't think that this suffering is not Dhamma. This suffering is also Dhamma. It also has the basic same nature. But we don't see it. Being unenlightened means to suffer, implies. To suffer. Being enlightened means no suffering. Being enlightened means seeing truth. When one sees truth, knows truth, is truth, there's no problem. Mm-hmm. So it is very interesting for us to just consider. consider. How do we see? How do you see most of the day? How do you see yourself? Do you see Dhamma? How do you see your body? How do you see others? How do you see an experience? How do you see the weather? How do you see uh, various things that happen to you? Do we see Dhamma? Or do we see that which we like and we want and we chase, that which we don't like, we don't want, we run away from, get rid of, that which we can't be bothered with and uh, is indifferent to and not attentive to. That is how most of the time we see. But it is possible for us to begin to see a little more Dhamma, at least to, to op- try and open the mind to seeing more in terms of Dhamma. Let's begin with that. To try and begin to see more in terms of Dhamma. What does that mean? It means developing right view, which is the first step on the Buddha's path, right view. doesn't mean you're enlightened, but at least you're beginning to get a a relatively good perspective a relatively right view it's still not enlightenment but it's a um, good step hmm? so now what is this right view and how do we use it in our lives it means that we begin to really open up to this fact or this at least uh, teaching. Uh, everything Everything has the basic nature, the essential, uh, the essential nature of truth. And what is that? Well, it has to be realized, but where do you start with? the buddha gave some very clear pointers like signposts he said you know look here he planted certain seeds these seeds are very important now with these without seeds one can uh, just uh, keep on going around and round and misinterpret most of the things which are teaching dhamma but we just misinterpret misunderstand with the right seeds planted in the mind, the right suggestion, the right pointers, it is a lot easier for us to begin to see. To begin to see. It's not that these teachings are in themselves the truth. No, the Buddha can't give you the truth. It's not in the sense that these teachings enlighten us. Not really. They're only teachings. But they make certain suggestions to the mind. They plant certain seeds in the mind. They direct the mind. So that, if we follow the training, these seeds can germinate and grow. So that we will, when we begin to open the eyes, we will see because we're looking in the right direction. I'll give a little example of that in a minute to make it clarify. But first of all, what are these signposts? And what sort of signposts that the Buddha give as as sort of um, directing, you know, as seeds or mm, pointers for us to help now, to help us see this basic truth. There are three, three signposts. Remember now, this is, you know, it's not the truth in the sense that once you hear it, you know the truth, you don't know anything. <laughs> but it's so—it's important because it, sits, it gives us a, an inkling of a, something to look out for, hmm? said that everything that comes into being, everything that arises, everything that comes into existence, everything that is born, animate, inanimate, mental, physical, does so dependent on conditions, and therefore is impermanent of the nature to change, of the nature to arise and pass away. That's the first pointer he gave. It's very important if you really contemplate it. It's not just an abstract philosophical theory. Everything that comes into being, everything that is created, everything that is born, everything that comes into existence, physical, mental, subjective, objective, animate, inanimate is conditioned does so, arises because of conditions, supportive conditions and because of that it is impermanent it changes so we've heard of this first characteristic anicca, impermanent everything is impermanent, everything is impermanent and we also, we use it as well you know, oh, everything is impermanent, <laughs> especially when you're not, uh, it doesn't bother you. If somebody else's car gets scratched, oh, everything is impermanent, don't worry about it. But if it's your car, it's <laughs> quite a different, uh, <laughs> you do you couldn't stand somebody saying that to you. Uh, if it's somebody else's, it doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, so impermanence. Yes, we we say that. And most of us say, oh yeah, I understand that. Everything is impermanent. Of course, everything is impermanent. But that's emotionally. We can't live that truth. Emotionally, we can't live that truth. We don't accept that. Deep down, we don't accept it. Otherwise, there wouldn't be so much problem in our lives when impermanence manifests all around (laughs) us and within us. Mm -hmm. But there is that other aspect to that thing, is that everything comes into being from conditions, many, many factors, many conditions. Not just accidentally, not out of nowhere, not just uh, by hoping and wishing and praying, uh, none of the from conditions. Very important. Everything is impermanent. Well, this is something you can use really as a pointer, isn't it? I mean, to really focus on that, we can really focus to see, you know, to see impermanence. To see the changing nature of things. The leaves on the tree. uh, When we finished building our hall at Bodhinyana Monastery, uh, it looked a bit, you know, it's a brick building. It's quite a nice hall. It's actually a very nice hall, but the altar looked a bit stark. It had this big Buddha statue, big, really big, and this beautiful uh, shrine, which was jara. The background was pine wood, and uh, the wall was brick. And so it looked a bit, it needed to be softened up a bit. And we thought, oh, some plants, some nice green, you know, natural plants. That's what we need there. That'll soften it all up and make it look more natural. And uh, I'm a bit, uh, I understand the nature of uh, the mind to some degree. And I know how difficult it is for us to look after uh, real plants, you see, because they need so much attention. <laughs> you know, look at these plants, and they, and they have to be watered, they have to be br- uh, clean, the leaves have to be clean, they have to be taken out at certain times, brought in at certain times. Oh, you know, it's, you know this is a monastery, we've got to keep things simple, we don't want to burden ourselves with so much. So, uh, we thought, what about the um, do uh, you think artificial plants <laughs> would be would be nice? And I've, of uh, course, people say, "Well, that's unnatural." Oh, there's nothing more natural than plastic. <laughs> it's perfectly natural, plastic. And then uh, and then uh, I said, oh, "Well, it's no, no, we won't get anything plastic. Only silk." <laughs> so we went to this shop, and they call it Evergreen. Evergreen. That's a good name, isn't it? Evergreen. So we were talking to this lady, and uh, you know, there was a bit of—I had a bit of reservation about this. And I—we were talking, and she overheard. I was there with this nun, and we were talking about this. And I was saying, well, you know, maybe we should get some, uh some real plans. you know. And uh, she overheard this, and she said, "Oh no, you don't want it. You want something that will last for <laughs> forever." <laughs> Uh, she convinced me so yeah, I guess so. <laughs> so we got these artificial silk plants. They look very nice. Most people don't even know that they're artificial. But uh, you know, the idea it lasts. Uh, it certainly lasts longer than a real plant. Uh, or I'm using these words loosely uh, than uh, a <laughs> biotech. Yeah. Do I don't know. <laughs> can't say a natural, can't say real. Just an ordinary plant. Our silk plant will last longer than the ordinary or, uh, plant. Okay. <laughs> 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 but it still, you know, still fades, and it will change, and it will <laughs> still manifest. Uh, everything, you know, it's only a matter of time, and it, it changes everything. These flowers, they do change, and uh, you know our bodies, and our feelings, and our thoughts, and our loves, and our hates, and our suffering. Thank goodness that changes. <laughs> uh, and yet, you know, this is manifesting all the time, but we don't quite notice it, do we? Not only do we not notice it. We don't, uh, we don't come to terms with it. We don't come to terms with it. We don't open the mind and really come to terms with it. Because when it's something beautiful, we really, you know, we want it to last. You may think, oh, I, I know the flower is going to fade. It's going to fade. I know that. doesn't mean very much to you, a flower, does it? If there's one flower, you can get another one tomorrow. Uh, but what about if it's something that is uh, that you do <laughs> like very much, uh, which starts to fade? Then, how do you feel about it? We're not quite ready to come to terms with it, are we? Uh, We haven't really seen this impermanence clearly enough to really emotionally come to terms with it. And yet everything, everything manifests that nature everywhere and within us. The trees, the leaves, the fruit, the weather, the buildings, the government, the economics, our bodies, our youth, our lives, and the emotions, uh, the mind. The Buddha said in actual fact that is that it would be better to take this bodies to be a self because the mind changes ever, ever so much more quickly. The mind is continually changing, the thoughts, the beliefs, continually changing. That is impermanent. That is the nature of all these things, impermanent. That's the first signpost that the Buddha gave. And this is a very important one. A signpost like that can get you over a lot of things. Hmm? Why is it important to have such a seed put into the mind? Because without it, it's easy to fall into the trap of uh, grabbing hold of something that and assuming that it is permanent, that it is real, that it is the, uh, the absolute. And the, just an example like if uh, like for instance in meditation, and just to, just to illustrate the difference that just a simple teaching like that can make in terms of view and understanding. If in meditation, you, if you already appreciate this as a basic uh, characteristic of all the... Well, everything that comes into being, everything that is created, everything that has shaped, everything that has formed, that has identity, that comes into being, is impermanent. Hmm. Then you sit in meditation you get... You see a light. As your mind becomes concentrated, light appears. If you have this view, you oh, light arises, dependent on conditions, the conditions that the mind is concentrating, it will pass away. That which arises, passes away. It's impermanent, very natural, it can't be anything very much. But you could put a very different interpretation on that experience light God has revealed himself, herself I've seen the light as something other than just another experience of noticing an impermanent arising and passing away the characteristic of of just a, a condition, in this case a condition of mind So this characteristic is very important to keep in mind, yes, it's it's very good to encourage ourselves to bring it into the mind, Yeah, to really notice that, that things change. Nothing stays new all the time, nothing stays beautiful all the time. The weather in Melbourne is probably the best teacher of impermanence one could have. As Dale said, "Take a raincoat, take an umbrella, take your shorts, <laughs> take your sun cream, take your sunshade, yeah, take everything weather <laughs> can do anything aren't changes if we bring that into the mind as a as a fact as a as a characteristic of life as a basic nature of existence, it can help us what well, come to terms with this reality because." If we don't come to terms with the reality, there's the process of suffering, mental anguish, the resistance, the resentment, the fear, the anxiety. If we come to terms, all there is is the impermanence, manifesting, dhamma manifesting. So it is it's a very good thing to, to bring into the mind, because we all have to come to terms with it. We will all be faced with many, many teachings of impermanence every day countless numbers every day. Now. Having said that everything is impermanent, the Buddha then uh, drew a a very a, a very important conclusion which is rather shocking and not at all acceptable to mortal beings who are unenlightened. He said that everything that is impermanent is unsatisfactory. Well, you know, that's a very, because uh, especially when they say, it's suffering, <laughs> then that's really heavy, isn't it? Everything is suffering. And we don't want to hear that. And of course, even if we want to hear it, we don't like it. And uh, we don't believe it. We can't really believe it because we, we don't, can't appreciate what the Buddha is saying. It's not pessimistic, really, but it's uh, a very logical conclusion when a characteristic is impermanent, it implies unsatisfactoriness or the fact that it cannot satisfy. Now you may find why is that so? Why can it, why can it not satisfy? If it's impermanent. Why can't it satisfy? Well, to satisfy means that it you know, it's gotta satisfy satisfy something What? It's got to satisfy something. What? What does it have to satisfy? Our desire for happiness. Isn't it? Our desire for happiness. That's what it's got to satisfy. But because everything is impermanent, changes, conditions, by its nature it cannot satisfy. It cannot give this happiness, complete and whole. Now, this uh, again, in this one especially, you'll have to contemplate for yourself. <laughs> try to uh, try to con- see, try to see it. Is it true or not? The Buddha just planted that seed. If you want to say it in the, in a the most um, comprehensive, overall way, that is most immediate. Try to see how this fits. E- is there anything or anyone or any place that can make you truly, completely happy? Of course, we've been looking for a long time. (laughs) We've been looking for a long time. Mm -hmm. We've been looking for a very long time. Mm. Many, many lifetimes. And certainly all of this lifetime. And quite often people ask me, you know, why... Or sometimes I ask personally, "Why did what do you ordain as a monk? Why are you a monk? Are you always happy? Are you happy? Well, sometimes I'm happy. Sometimes I'm not happy. Do you like being a monk? Well, sometimes I like being a monk. Sometimes I don't like being a monk. Oh, sometimes I don't like being a monk. Really, <laughs> uh, and sometimes you know, I'm not all that happy either. Sometimes I'm a bit sad. And then they say, well, why are you a monk? (laughs) Uh, Why are you a monk? Or people say, why do people become monks? And when they don't want to be too personal, they say, why do people become monks? Well, I don't know why other people become monks. (laughs) Uh, But um, basically, whatever we do, we always do in the hope of it achieving happiness that's for sure whatever you're doing if you're a butcher (laughs) you do it because you you think that will be the way to happiness whether you do it consciously or unconsciously you think that's yeah you're going to be happy why do you come here? because you think you're going to get a bit closer to happiness why do you work? you think you'll be happy why don't you work? Because you think you'll be happy. Hmm. Why do you get married? Because you think you'll be happy. Why don't you get married? Because you think you'll be happy. <laughs> why do you become a monk? Because you think you're going to be happy. Why else? That's why we do anything. It's always in the belief or in the hope or you know assessing all the <coughs> various factors. We think, that's that's the way in that. More like, most likely, will make me happy, or at least reduce the unhappiness. <laughs> mm. That's the motivation. But then, uh, you know, I, I try to contemplate it. And why do people become monks? I've been, I've been a monk for a long time now. I've met a lot of monks. Why do people become monks, or why do they stay as monks? Uh, I mean, I could say the same thing about other. Other professions or other vocations, but it's a, of interest, I for me because I'm a monk to consider to contemplate this vocation, and I really f- feel that there's only there's only two main factors or two main reasons that operate. Either one or the other must be operating, or maybe both. But if neither of them are operating, kind of an intuitive realization from the start, and certainly become more uh, strong and, and mature as I look more closely, see more clearly, and that is that nothing, no one, nowhere can ever make me happy. Nothing. Can ever tr- make me truly happy. No one can ever make me truly happy. Nowhere will I find this true happiness. In Buddhism, we call this nibbida, disenchantment. <laughs> no longer enchanted with mortality, the mortal realm, with all of its all that it has to offer. That may sound rather a kind of a. I mean, you could t- see it as I said. It, sometimes it's seen as depressing or negative, or. But I don't see it like that. I see it as kind of a relief. Actually, I mean, it's like, oh, well, that's reasonable anyway. Then no wonder I've never really, completely, absolutely happy. I've never been really, completely, absolutely happy. And it doesn't seem to be too many people. Around. <laughs> regardless of what they achieve, where they go, what they have, or what they don't have. Nothing, no one, nowhere, can give it to us. The other, see, so for someone to be willing to renounce certain aspects of mortality and seek for something beyond, requires some appreciation of that. The stronger the appreciation of that, uh, of course, they're more willing to renounce or give up and seek for something beyond mortality. The other one is uh, some people uh, come from it more from the... These are the more refined, altruistic and gifted people. Quite often come from it from the angle of just an intuitive, uh, very strong, intuitive uh, appreciation. They're not enlightened, but they have a very strong intuitive appreciation that there is something beyond mortality. Yeah, no, their life is all right. They're usually very gifted people. They're usually very, um, very fortunate people, very intelligent, quite beautiful, quite handsome, quite knowledgeable, quite happy lives in the ordinary sense. Uh, things are going well for them. But they have this... It's the result of the very good karma, which means... The, they must have developed something that gives them a strong intuitive appreciation that there is something beyond the realm of mortal existence, and they are quite willing to. They, they are usually drawn to the spiritual life, spiritual seeking. So, you know, it's one or, or or the other of these, and usually a combination of both. But for some people, it's you know, one, one of these two factors will be stronger. But this, you know, this sense of s- realizing the unsatisfactoriness, that nothing can really satisfy, hmm? it cannot be pressing. It's actually quite a, as I said, a release sometime. It doesn't mean that you're going to, you know, ah, nothing can satisfy me, that's it. i huh? fed up. I won't even bother eating. What's the point of eating if eating is not going to satisfy (laughs) me? Well, no, it doesn't satisfy, but you still (laughs) eat. You still eat, but then your life is not, I mean, the purpose of your life is not eating. The purpose of your life will not remain eating. If you really believe that eating is going to bring complete happiness to you, then the purpose of your life is eating. But you know that eating will not make you completely happy. So the purpose of your life is not eating. Wealth is not really going to make you happy. So the purpose of your life won't be just accumulating wealth. Fame. You know, your face on the billboard and newspapers and everybody recognizes you. still not going to make you happy. <laughs> so the purpose of your life won't be just to become famous, to become uh, healthy even, to become a mother, to become a father. I'm not saying that you won't do these things, but the appreciation of the unsatisfactoriness means that you know that just that much is not going to give you complete happiness. It's not really going to fulfill. It's not really... Going to 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 satisfy this desire for happiness, and we can see it all around us. So, at this stage, when we begin to see the impermanence, the unsatisfactoriness, this yes, this, the purpose of our lives begin to take a a very different direction. We know the limitation the limitation of what the world can give, we begin to appreciate what the world can give and the nature of what it gives. And we come to terms with it. And we don't suffer so much. We know that the world is like this. There is birth, yeah, as soon as there is birth, of course. You've just said it, there has to be death. You say youth, you've already said old age. You say beauty, you've already said ugliness. (coughs) You've said success, you've already said failure. You've said praise, blame is right there. It's just the way the world is. Now, as we appreciate this and open up to this, we feel a sense of peace through this understanding even at this right view level we send a sense of peace and relief the world is like that Mm. the world is like that coming to terms with the nature of the world so we can live in the world constructively creatively peacefully wisely without any false hope so we begin to contemplate this you know, impermanence which implies the basic unsatisfactoriness of the mortal realm it can never satisfy us it's not where we belong people tell me, why are we here? it's a mistake <laughs> <laughs> we, we are here to realize this is not where we belong it's like you know, you're going around on the freeway and you go into that sometimes, I, I don't know, I, don't, I haven't seen them in Melbourne, but in Perth we've got uh, these lanes on a freeway. There's a lane in the middle quite often where traffic can go, uh, like, they can open it up from both ends. So in the morning, when all the traffic, most of the traffic is going into the city, that middle lane is open to traffic going into the city. And then in the evening, when most of the traffic is coming out of the city, that middle lane is open to the traffic going out of the city. Now, when it's open to the traffic going into the city, at the other end there's a big, red, enormous sign saying, You're going the wrong way (laughs) to traffic coming out of the city. So you're driving and you go into that lane and you see this sign, Wrong way. (laughs) Oh, wrong way. (laughs) Go back. (laughs) And so, what's the purpose of mortal existence? You know, people ask me, When did all this start? Why are we. I don't know when this started. But I know one thing: it is not where we belong. Hmm? Mortality is not where we belong. Why to transcend mortality? To transcend the un, impermanent, unsatisfactory nature of mortality. Because in mortality, it will always be like that. Always of the same nature, the same truth, impermanent, unsatisfactory. And the third characteristic, which I dare not speak about tonight is non-self. But I spoke about that on another night, thank goodness. So I wouldn't want to try and tackle that one this evening. That uh, this process, everything, just follows these laws, this law of nature, the laws of nature. Things come into being because of conditions, and by that they are impermanent, and because of that they are unsatisfactory. Nobody's business. Just the way things are. There's no one behind it. There is no one mm, creating it. It's just the way things are. But uh, this evening, I just like encourage the these two um, signposts. The other one of uh, non-self or not-self or calllessness of all. I've already spoken on another evening but this evening like, impermanence and unsatisfactoriness of everything that is mortal we don't see it like that yeah. even though we've heard it now you've heard it you probably had heard it many times before I've heard it lots of times I've spoken about it lots of times too But is that the way we see it? How do we see experience? How do we see things? How do we... How do we see? Is it with this eye of wisdom that appreciates this reality, this truth, this basic nature? Or is it still very much from... I like, I don't like, I want, I don't want, I want to hold, I want to get rid of, this is mine, this is To keep it. Mm. The big difference is if we see, in accordance to dhamma, if we see dhamma, there is peace. If we don't, there is turmoil, conflict. So try to con- try to contemplate this. When you get a, a headache, mm. well, you have a head. You Can get a headache. Why? Well, there's many reasons why you get a headache. Lots of reasons why you can get a headache. Lots and lots of reasons. Lots of causes. That headache, well, it's impermanent. It'll pass. You can take a headache powder, it'll pass more quickly. And it'll pass. That's why it's unsatisfactory to have a head. As soon as you get a head, you're bound to get a headache. Or get hit on the head. It's unsatisfactory to have a head. It's unsatisfactory to have a, an arm, you get tennis elbow. It's unsatisfactory to have knees, you get pain in the knees. It's unsatisfactory to have a stomach, you get indigestion. But the way <laughs> you know, mortality is, by its nature, impermanent and unable to give us true happiness. If we understand its nature, then at least we don't create any problems around it. It's just the way it is, and we can be at peace with it for as long as we are alive. So, I try to contemplate this. See if you can see Dhamma in everything. It's the underlying essence, the underlying principle. The Buddha gave us a few hints, a few seeds, a few points. So I think I've said enough this evening. Are there any questions that you wish to ask with regards to what I've said or failed to say? Please don't jump to the conclusion that when I said everything unlings, We have many, many pleasant things. It's just that it's not able to satisfy us.